And if I wasn't the oldest member of the Rare Book staff last week, I certainly am this week. Um, some 20 years ago, I wandered into Butler Library at Columbia University and found myself in a rat's warren housing the then Book Arts Press, Terry, the library school, and a program that was neither understood nor valued sufficiently at its home institution. Uh, I was happy in a way to see it move to a place where obviously it is taken very, very much more seriously. I look around at these surroundings. I look at the exhibit which surrounds me. I look at the, the facilities which the library has provided. I look at the museum and I think that at last this is a place where the kind of education that Terry began to deliver at Columbia to a host of recipient people is at last being valued. Neither Terry nor I is what anyone in his right mind would call a Virginia Slim, but Terry, you've come a long way, baby. This is terrific. <laughs> This afternoon, I want to consider what is a broader than special collections topic. Some difficulties of the relationships between our society's perceived need to preserve its cultural memories, and one of the increasingly large and complex bureaucratic institutions, libraries, that contain and preserve them. For my purposes today, memories, cultural memories, are anything you can find in books, in libraries. Memories are not only that, of course. Much of what we remember is preserved and transmitted in ways that have nothing to do with libraries. Books, repositories of written memories, clearly contain and preserve a special subset of memories of all sorts. No society is entirely literate, including even the heavily text-oriented micro-societies of academics. Shared memory, whatever its sources, tends to be communicated above all in the arena of the oral through anecdote and gossip. Such a qualification may be necessary. Nonetheless, the role of the library as an institution dedicated to the collection and preservation of cultural memories seems very simple indeed. Acquire, catalog, make accessible, and preserve the books that constitute our cultural memories. Things are not quite this simple, however. In this talk, I start with a kind of memory that libraries may not be able to contain. I then look at a kind of memory that libraries can, but which many choose not to contain. I conclude by observing that librarians and hence libraries collect and preserve cultural memories far more haphazardly than most library users appear to realize. My two examples function primarily in order to buttress this argument and the point that librarians' decisions about what shall be contained by the institutions in which they work are frequently accidental and contingent, dependent upon a host of factors, most of which are unaffected by any considerations of the significance of the function of the institution itself. The repositories that librarians build are, in consequences, 
constructions that only partially represent, not reconstructions that faithfully represent the vast universe of potentially salvable culture which print and its surrogates have produced. For whatever reasons, library users almost never examine either librarians' collection building processes or their results, which is not to say, of course, that they never complain about those results. Librarians themselves agitate about such issues, of course, and rightly, they're significant. But their examination ought not to be in the hands only of those whose work it is to build library collections, and this really is my fundamental point. If, as it seems to me, a culture's recollections depend on its collections, then users as well as librarians need to consider these questions. I suspect, however, that few people are certain about what they expect libraries to provide. I also, I also suspect that very few people, specifically very few academics, ever ask such a question. Thinking about libraries is not part of an academic's job. Using them is. Academics and the historical humanities depend on libraries, their ability to pursue easily. A line of inquiry depends in a most literal sense on what non-academics, librarians, decide to acquire and catalog, how they organize, shelve, and reveal the presence of the materials they have acquired, and how successfully they prevent the materials they have acquired from ceasing to exist. As they do these things well or ill, librarians make teaching, studying, and research and scholarship possible or impossible. No library collects all or even a large fraction of the possible materials that document all our many cultures, many memories. How do their staffs choose from amongst the vast possibilities they confront? Academics rarely ask. Increasing numbers of books and journals to say nothing of manuscript and archival collections seek admittance to libraries, but too few of our employees are able to select new or retrospective acquisitions with an expertise that academics recognize as academically respectable or have time for genuinely considered selection decisions. Selection is itself an aspect of librarians' work frequently left unanalyzed, unproblematized, even by the academics who are most at its mercy. And even though, as I've argued elsewhere, the selection process is deeply problematical and deeply suspect. One last word about procedure. I assume here the usefulness and the validity of an anecdotal and personal approach to a discussion of how the work performed in libraries affects the availability, even the survival, of the cultural memories which the varied labors of students, teachers, and scholars may examine. <clears throat> To one of the charges used to discredit such an approach, anecdotal individualism. I plead guilty, and I plead the extenuating precedent, though in other respects I would claim relatively few resemblances to him, of Michel Foucault, who writes, whenever I have tried to carry out a piece of theoretical work, it has been on the basis of my own experience, always in relation to processes I saw <clears throat> taking place around me. It is because I thought I could recognize in the things I saw in the institutions with which I dealt, in my relations with others, cracks, silent shocks, malfunctionings, that I undertook a particular piece of work, a few fragments 
of autobiography. I begin then with an example of the sort of information, cultural memory, or cultural memory, that will not be found in libraries or in the books they contain. In 1967, Dutton published a novel by Helen Hudson called Meyer Meyer. I first read the book that year in a copy which Thomas Lask loaned to my parents. Lask had reviewed Meyer Meyer for the New York Times, for which he was once, when he was alive, a daily book reviewer, and where he was also a member of the reportorial staff and poetry editor during the years when the Times printed a daily poem on its editorial page. He had been my father's student in the 1930s. They and their families remained friends through their own and into their children's, that is, my generation. You may need to suspend disbelief for the use of the word children's there. Meyer Meyer offers a critical feminist view of a male history professor. The author depicts his behavior, amorous and otherwise, with his students, colleagues, and mistress and artist as selfish and unpleasant. Largely forgotten, the book nonetheless has much to recommend it. Its acerbic view of its central characters, somewhat severe for the time, would now strike most readers as relatively mild. Both ordinary readers and historians interested in how the revived American women's movement of the 1960s found new literary expression. The novel postdates Betty Friedan's feminine mystique by three years would find it readable. Readable or not, however, the book has some documentary significance for the history of feminist American literature in its period, as well as for its depiction of academic life and mores. The author's name on the book's title page, Helen Hudson, is a nom de plume. As recently as 1988, the latest reference I've found for her, its author lived in New Haven, where she continued to write. She was also married to a professor of political science at Yale University, Robert Lane. Thomas Lask may not have known who Helen Hudson really is when he reviewed the novel. He did know, but could not say in print, that it tells, or as this imagines, a tale about other real people. Its title character, Meyer, was modeled closely on another friend of my father's, a Brooklyn College history professor named Solomon F. Bloom. Hit and killed by a bus, this is coincidence, at Broadway and 116th Street, when he was at Columbia in 1962 to present a lecture, Saul Bloom was one of my father's childhood friends. They had known one another since Saul's immigration from Europe shortly before World War I. Like Tom Lask, Saul Bloom was part of the adult orbit in which I was raised, and Saul and Tom knew one another through their mutual friendship with my parents. Another of Hudson's characters was modeled on Bloom's long-term mistress, a sculptor from Orange, Connecticut, who also taught at Yale, named Alga. I never knew, and despite inquiries to the Yale archives, have not yet learned Alga's last name. At Yale, one supposes, she had got to know one or both of the lanes. A third character was modeled on a colleague of Bloom's, the late Samuel J. Hurwitz, with elements perhaps of Moses Rishon, now a professor of history at San Francisco State University as well. As a teenager, I believe in the summer of 1958 or 59, I visited Alga's home in Orange with my parents and Saul Bloom, 
an occasion I remember in part because it was also my first visit to New Haven and Yale. My mother read Tom's review of Meyer Meyer. As she later told me, she suspected immediately from what his review did manage to say about the novel's characters that the book concerned Saul Bloom, about whom, as it happens, her feelings would have been closer to Helen Hudson's, if Meyer Meyer represents those views accurately, than to my father's. She wasn't real fond of old Saul. Curious, she called Tom with her suspicions. He confirmed them and loaned her his review copy. He read it, she read it, gave it to my father to read, and then gave it to my wife and me to read, too. Not only did we then live in New Haven, where my wife was a graduate student at Robert Lane and Alga's University, but also I had known Saul Bloom. We did read it, and we now have our own copy of the book. What does one do with such knowledge? What status does it have as knowledge? How do I even know why should you believe that any of this is true? In truth, even for me, it's all hearsay. And I've met, as almost none of you can have done, almost all of the people just mentioned, with the exceptions of Samuel J. Hurwitz and Helen Hudson. If anyone thinks this stuff is knowledge, it's still worth asking how any library might contain it you may all happily grant, for it is, after all, merely obvious, that Meyer Meyer is a book which an academic library with the responsibility for documenting the history of American women's fictions or academic novels or just plain old American literature, whatever we mean by that, might want to have. But would you also agree that a library which owns the book ought also to possess somewhere a text about it which includes such highly speculative, unpleasant, personally damaging, damaging, and unfounded gossip such as this. Why not? Modern editions of 18th century novels or poems, as is also merely obvious, are always provided with such contextualizing annotation. The Dunciad is unthinkable in any of its myriad forms in a modern text that omits any efforts to identify the real human beings whom Pope pillories. We cannot imagine such a beast, neither indeed could Pope, although he might not have foreseen annotations of his own annotations. Yet such annotations do more than I've just, do no more than I've just done, pulling together and presenting a mixture of truths which include both documentable facts Bloom is a history professor at Brooklyn College, and the kind of gossip, Alga as Bloom's long-term mistress, I've just purveyed about the people referred to in Hudson's novel. They recall cultural memories, even though most people do not share or keep these specific memories within their own individual memories that mingle indiscriminately. Memories with completely different referential statuses. Bentley as famous textual scholar versus Bentley as pretentious horse's ass. Editors and scholars go to libraries for the information they can dredge up to bring such memories back to some semblance of life for those, our students, our colleagues, even occasionally ourselves, who find it necessary or pleasurable to read works such as these once in a while. 
Editors and scholars do not doubt that such notes are necessary. For textbook purposes, if not for critical purposes, almost no one doubts their utility. Teachers will, of course, wonder if their students really pay as much attention to those notes as they hope they do. They should also wonder, but in my own experience rarely do, if those students who do pay attention will then uncritically misunderstand annotations which gather together and present Pope's mixed cultural memories by reading them as if they were all equally the truth, a distillation of our memories about such people as, say, Bentley or Sibber. For such notes, generations of scholars have ransacked both published works and unpublished letters, diaries, and journals, seeking just the sort of gossip I've here provided without cost and time or labor to anyone for Meyer Meyer. Uncorroborated, however, my information must remain suspect. What would constitute corroboration? Saul Bloom, Olga, and Sam Hurwitz, primary witnesses, and Tom Lask and my parents, secondary ones, are all dead. Should I write Ms. Lane, Helen Hudson, and ask? I did write to Professor Rishon, whom I know slightly. His reply, perfectly polite, was completely uninformative. Yale's archives has provided neither Olga's last name nor any other biographical information about her. Unless the novel excites interest from later generations of readers' interest, which it shows no signs of exciting, documents which might provide corroboration, Hudson's correspondence or diaries, Saul Bloom's, Olga's, Hurwitz's, Rishon's, if any of these survive, will never be searched. And of course, if those sources have not been or do not get saved in libraries, searching them is likely to be impossible. Whatever confirmatory or <coughs> excuse me, or contradictory information they might have contained will never rise to the level of anyone's, let alone the culture's, memories. And yet, will our understanding of a fiction not be enriched or altered if we are allowed a peek? at some of the materials from which its writer constructed that fiction. I phrase this question to suggest that yes is the only answer it can receive, but such a yes evades some extremely basic questions about how we read fictions. To what degree, for instance, does insider knowledge of a book's genesis affect the ways in which we read it, especially by comparison with readers who lack the inside perspective? Argued in other terms, this question was a staple during the days when the then new criticism was attempting to supplant a more traditionally historical approach to reading. In the now antediluvian tradition in which I was trained, the opposing views on such matters were presented with crystalline clarity by Douglas Bush, historian, and Cleanth Brooks, new critic, arguing with one another about how best to understand the depiction of Oliver Cromwell in Marvel's Horatian Ode. They are not simple views, nor are they simple to decide between. Of course, memories can inform reading, and perhaps they should. Yet memories get lost. The urgency of what they were supposed to recall gets transmuted or just muted with the passing of time. And at some point or other, a future generation is no longer able to pick up on the conditions out of which a book was born and to which it tries to speak. No longer knowing what it has lost, the future generation and its successors may read the book anyway, finding other things of value in it. 
or no longer knowing what it has lost, may instead simply discard the book from those it keeps in its consciousness as works that matter and remain worth collecting and reading. Thus, for these as well as other reasons, do works drift in and out of canonical status over long periods of time. My implicit yes to the question of whether information concerning its genesis will affect our understanding of a work also assumes something else, the significance of which is by no means obvious. It derives from the only partly illusory tangibility of the sheer stuff with which a librarian deals. Both the physical copies of the book in which Meyer Meyer is embodied and preserved and the documents, whether they actually exist somewhere or not, which I've imagined might exist, and which, if they did, might contain material which would confirm or contradict my remembered or constructed excursus on one aspect of this book's possible genesis. Had we the book alone, discussion of its genesis would be neither possible nor relevant. The book would be read or forgotten for other reasons, but had we as well the additional documentation of I, I've imagined might exist, and which I have reconstructed without documentation from my memory, then the sheer presence of such stuff in some collection somewhere would eventually make a scholar happy as it emerged from its Hollinger boxes into the light of day. Thus, would these documents affect understanding of the work whether or not they should do so? For, of course, the tangibility of documents is only an inert fact about them, not a reason to think that they help readers decide between ways of reading fictions elaborated by either Douglas Bush or Cleanth Brooks. Granting this objection, tangibility is nonetheless something to be reckoned with. As Richard Turdeman appositely notes, normally objects have an intimate relation to remembrance. Of the objects we call books and papers, that very tangible stuff with which librarians work, this relation is especially characteristic. Everything in the world, as Mallarmé said, exists in order to end up as a book. I want to shift gears now by referring to a poet who often deals with memory in his work, but I want to leave this poet unidentified at least for a bit. Born in 1907, the poet produced work that lies well out of the stylistic mainstream of modernist poetry. Nonetheless, I've enjoyed it and read it ever since early in the 1960s I first encountered it, thanks to another review by Tom Lask in the Daily New York Times of the poet's 1962 selected poems. In an autobiographical memoir published in 1992, this poet, who remains alive, despite a 1907 birth date, wrote about a literary hoax, which, its readers are told, they will recall so well that only a few details will instantly bring it back to mind. It is, as the poet remarks in passing, part of common history. Really? The poet is writing, alas, in language that displays neither the, dis the dispassion nor the charity for which we might have hoped from a writer by now, long, long both in years and honors, about the famous Ern Malley hoax. It was by mere chance that I became involved in the hoax, 
An arrogant and stupid literary magazine was jointly produced by Max Harris and John Reed under the title of Angry Penguins. It aimed to be more avant-garde than most progressive theories of the day, among these surrealism. The poet goes on to recall setting about concocting false surrealistic poetry for this magazine and being quickly warned off his project by some ingenious friends who already, he continues, had invented poor urn, using Stuart's sister's address from which to send to Max Harris a semi-literate letter posting supposed poems and some covering matter. Max fell for it at once. The poems composed in one idle afternoon at the office were supplied with a mishmash of all the then popular avant-garde theories of poetry, surrealist vomit, Marxist propaganda, obscure so styled intellectual verse, free verse techniques, multiple meaningless references to irrelevant objects, pictures, ideas, and what have you. They then roughed up the papers to make them appear to have been written over some time and sat and waited until angry penguins exploded with two numbers hailing Ern Malley as the greatest poet of our day. Finally, the news of the hoax was released and the rest belongs to common history. Both here and abroad, there were a number of eminent critics whose faces must have been very red. Max Harris and his friends tried to put a good face on it by claiming that Macaulay and Stewart were simply mistaken, etc., etc. We catch the drift of the poet's tale without difficulty. We're all knowledgeable about hoaxes. The joke is not one of surpassing originality or difficulty or even wit. Yet, if you are like me, even as you grasp its drift, you are nonetheless wondering, who are these people? Max Harris, John Reed, Stuart, Macaulay? If you are like me, you love the Target magazine's title, Angry Penguins. Would anyone dare to make up that title for an avant-garde periodical in a novel? But, like me, you've never heard of it. In fact, if you're like me, you've never till now heard of any of this stuff, none of these people at all. This is, it would appear, not a case of failed memory. It's a case of sheer ignorance and not, I think, just my own. But I'm concerned not by the vagaries of individual people's knowledge, but rather by libraries and cultural memories. Need I say that I am not making this stuff, st stuff up out of whole cloth? Yet this is not material any of us was ever taught. No one will ever test, it, uh, test us on it. Few of our colleagues think it matters in any way. We don't have to know it. It may be someone's cultural memory, but it ain't ours. Of course, the we I've just used is by no means universal. The poet and memoirist is A.D. Hope, who grew up in Hobart, Tasmania, was educated at Sydney, earned a second bad degree at Oxford, and spent the rest of his professional life in Sydney and Melbourne. He has published numerous books. They've won a number of awards, but very few people read them. They are, after all, mostly books of poetry or literary criticism. Most of those who do read them, I'm sorry to have to tell you, are Australians. <clears throat> the hoax about which Hope writes in his memoir 
concerned a literary periodical published during the 1940s in Adelaide. I can locate a copy of this periodical at my near neighbor, Pennsylvania State University, where there happens to be a center for Australian and New Zealand studies. But my own institution is far from unique among American libraries in failing to own it. Only after 1994, when our library cataloged Michael Hayward's study of The Earn Malley Affair, published and acquired in 1993, could we teach this episode in the history of English language surrealism or literary hoaxes, even if we had wanted to. By and large, however, we don't want to. The majority of those who, for one reason or another, in one way or another, care for English literature, either because we get paid to teach the subject to young people, or to write, or to buy books and periodicals which are in some way of or about it for the libraries which young people and their teachers use, or who perhaps merely read what we can of the stuff with an airy or ignorant disdain for its place or level of intellectual origin, do not bother much about Australian English literature unless we are Australians, or perhaps New Zealanders, though I doubt it. Were we for any reason otherwise inclined, the state of our library resources does not permit us the option by and large in any case. Can one imagine why this state of affairs so normal, really, that even to point it out must seem slightly deranged, might matter to anyone at all? Thomas Kennelly, who has recently succeeded Patrick White in the Australian Writer We Notice category, owes much to the happy accident of having ascended to the attention of Metropolitan Mr. Spielberg. He now spends half of every year in Los Angeles. A.D. Hope has ascended outside Australia to very nearly no one's attention except Tom Lask's and mine and Tom is now dead. <clears throat> what these two examples indicate, first of all, is our uncertainty, my uncertainty, since I have no right to assert through a linguistic trick any scope whatsoever for my views or my doubts about what constitutes a cultural memory in general or a cultural memory specifically fit first for a library and second for its users. Some things known to others, are unknown to most of us. Who wants, who needs to know them, to learn them? Terry Caesar recalls an Israeli poet's comment about the difference between himself and W.H. Auden. Quote, I have to be aware of him, whereas he doesn't have to be aware of me. <laughs> right on, Israeli poet. We are Auden, of course. Hope and the creators, dupes, aficionados, and historians of the Urn Mali hoax, by contrast, are all in the position of Caesar's Israeli poet. They do, they have to know about us. We are metropolitan. Their very hoaxes respond to us. By and large, we know nothing about them. They are provincial. We don't feel the worse for not knowing anything about them. Some things are unknown to anybody. Who besides me, now that Saul Bloom, Olga Samuel J. Hurwitz, Tom Lask, and my parents are all dead, and without confirmation from Helen Hudson or Moses Rishon, 
whatever such confirmation might consist in, no, consist in knows about the historical background to Meyer Myers, who, since you all know about it too, if you trust my memory, cares. Who's read the book? Who will read it? There is very little a librarian can do about the kind of lacunae represented by this example. Meyer Meyer is probably typical of a great many novels that, presented to their readers as fictions, are made in significant measure out of their writers' perceptions of the lives of real people, including themselves, whom they know. Unless documentation survives to link those real people with the fictional events of the novels in which they appear, however, readers, students, teachers, and scholars will never know about such extra-fictional reference. The significance of their ignorance will be slight. Most of these books, as has been true of most other books of all sorts throughout history, will disappear from consciousness without ever attracting either a search for such documentation or even just plain and simple attention. There is some potential here for a self-confirming argument. Because scholars are not struck by questions about a book's relation to its author's milieu, it may die of neglect more quickly than it should. Who can tell? Our library's shelves are full of books unread for this reason and for many others. Some deserve rediscovery. Who will find them? Who's even looking? Unimpelled by a specific agenda, nowadays usually gender, class, or race-based. And in any case, what do my shoulds and deserves in these last sentences actually mean? Because there is relatively little that librarians can do about such lacunae, there is not, however, nothing we can do about them if we agree that these lacunae ought to concern us in the first place. An essay such as this one represents at least one thing that one librarian can do. Others include writing inquiries where they remain alive to people one suspects of having been a writer's models, or to authors seeking additional information. I've tried the former course without success. Thus far, I've lacked the temerity for the second. In fact, many passionate collectors and enthusiasts do just this. Upon their efforts to gather all possible data relevant to the subjects they collect, many of our great research collections depend. We normally distinguish collections from collectors from librarians, and while we tend merely to ignore the latter, we too often positively malign the former, stereotyping them, for instance, as mere rich accumulators who remove materials from public accessibility for no reason other than self-aggrandizement through property-based and sentimental association with the outer trappings of culture that without their enthusiastic interest and willingness to invest their own funds, indeed without their sheer knowledgeability. Many materials that seem ephemeral and of no interest to others would perish is not always something that scholars or librarians bear in mind, although both benefit clearly and directly from such activities. Collectors practice their propedeutic to scholarship, however, on a model analogous to an extreme free market economy. Utterly unregulated and with no joint or cooperative planning, they acquire and gather together materials on the basis of purely individual decisions. 
this kind of accident, sympathetic attention, has an analog among those people charged formally as collectors are not with the creation of a research library's collections, librarians. As a library collection officer, I pay attention to Helen Hudson and A.D. Hope as the result of a personal history that few other people who do what I do in other libraries can possibly share. They are, of course, doing exactly the same with other writers, other writing cultures that my colleagues and I routinely overlook in acquiring materials for the library that employs us. An army of people doing the acquisitions work we all do and whose idiosyncrasies balanced one another might, in a world also characterized by unlimited budgets and space, create truly comprehensive libraries that enabled scholarship to proceed unhindered by selectors' blindnesses or prejudices. No library is available to afford the payroll such an army would require or the space to house the materials they would bring in. Each is thus at the mercy of selectors with blindnesses, prejudices, and idiosyncratic backgrounds and enthusiasms just as peculiar as, though differently peculiar from, mine. This situation might not matter. Were library users aware of and able to, to correct for such inherent biases, or were they interested in interrogating library institutional practices as they interrogate the practices of many other of our society's institutions that justify by seeing them as if they really are inherent biases what may not need to be inherent at all? But most readers, most scholarly and academic readers, never think about such questions at all. My second, the hope example, seems to me less understandable, less excusable than my first. It stresses in an even more obvious, because more wholesale way, the role of accident in the collection of in the construction of research libraries. This is the second point my two examples exist to suggest, following upon uncertainty about what constitutes anything we might call a cultural memory at all. The general lack of interest in the provincial is not new. American literature itself long suffered under this general excuse for its dismissal. Even today, no one needs to look as far afield as Australia, New Zealand, India, Africa, or the Caribbean for examples of English language writers whose works and history this at many English language universities with serious pretensions as research supporting institutions with active and productive departments of English, students cannot study or teachers teach. Works defined as regional or generic simply do not get selected for inclusion in library collections. At the library of the university from which Zane Gray graduated, Penn's dental school, how many Westerns are part of the library's collection? Or books of any sort published in Salt Lake City or Reno by publishers other than the universities located in those two cities? How many books are stigmatized and hence uncollected by library selectors because they can be subsumed under rubrics that consign them to automatic oblivion, science fiction, mysteries, romances, bestsellers, in terms of their collecting interests, 
how many American research libraries find the literature of Anglophone Canada, to say nothing of Francophone Canada, to be just as distantly compelling as that of Australia? There are exceptions in all these categories, of course, but the exceptions are just that. They are unusual. They result from geography. Canadian institutions collect Canadian writers. Nevada institutions, Nevada writers. From odd institutional context, the existence of a center, it's a one-person center, by the way, for the study of Australian and New Zealand issues at Penn State. Or from odd institutional selectors, one who, for instance, has read A.D. Hope, suspects there may be more at home like him, and thus bumps into Judith Wright and Lily Brett. Are they like him because they're Australian? Or another who, having read Joanna Russ, perhaps because she too, like Tom Lask, was his father's student many years ago, has never been able to dismiss science fiction from his selection concerns. The exceptions, in short, result from accidents. The collections which those accidents produce are contingent upon the presence and continued existence of non-institutionalized selection practices and practitioners able in their acquisitions to follow up on their own partialities as well as to acquire the obvious, the mainstream, and the central, the metropolitan, without which selectors are invited to seek alternative employment. If, as Mary Warnock writes, personal identity is a function of an individual's memory, then a society's identity may similarly be considered as at least partly a function of its retrievable cultural memories. Cultural memory is a concept which needs far more definition than I've bothered to give it here. The plural IES ending in my title indicates that I think there are many such memories. I hope I've also indicated that I imagine no single culture out of the many in which we are embedded or by which we are surrounded that is an uncontested monolith. I've concentrated on literature with the existence of two minute examples that happen to be peculiar snippets from my own knowledge simply because it is my field and because both examples dependent as they are upon a specific family relationship to a book reviewer for the New York Times, happens so perfectly to suit my argument. Countless other examples illustrative of the multiple operations of contingency in library collection building might have been used from this, from related, or from altogether different subjects. All memories, personal, society, cultural, are a construct Neither a single individual nor a single institution can remember everything or provide for total recall. Individuals, institutions, academics all choose what is worth remembering and on the basis of their choices construct their personal or cultural memories and identities. But they can do so only from among the, the materials made available to them by circumstances and opportunities for choice that are only partially under their own control. Those materials are the result, that is, of a construction, of many constructions made prior to the individuals, the institutions, or the academics. How individuals construct their own memories is not my topic. I'm concerned, rather, with the almost completely unexamined nature of the constructs which, by their acquisitions, decisions, librarians who staff libraries and, 
what is even more obscure to most academics, the employees of specialized library book vendors build as they go about the quotidian task of selecting and acquiring the materials that constitute the library collections with which present and future scholars work and upon which they will continue to rely. Daily, these selectors accumulate the materials from which contemporary culture's memories will be gleaned. Quite literally, they construct those memories with each item-by-item -item decision about what is and what is not worth acquiring and preserving, how they relate materials to one another by their classification systems and subject analyses will also affect how and what memories can be recalled. A vast bureaucracy exists to build the research libraries on which scholars depend. That bureaucracy is almost completely unstudied, not by its own constituents. Librarians' noses are constantly to be found stuck in our own navels but rather by those whom it ostensibly serves. This despite the fact that increasingly those scholars whom it serves have come to recognize how other bureaucracies and social organizations, especially with those with functions which can be broadly grouped together as intellectual or ideological, demand scrutiny and interrogation. Academics pay so little attention to the libraries in which they pursue their work, however, that even to speak of libraries and worse, librarians, as outside the control of academics and thus uncontrolledly choosing what it is academics are able to attend to must raise a prospect which is, at first blush, disgustingly improbable. Meanwhile, what is most in danger of getting lost while the process remains unexamined, and can this possibly come as a surprise to anyone, are those books which might have preserved as cultural memories, texts, discourses which are overtly resistant, transgressive, disapproved, or just plain marginalized on backgrounds or, or interests to do so. Thus, I may pay attention to chronologically now somewhat removed women novelists, poets, and dramatists and to Australians, other selection officers with special interests in travel writers, lesbian pornography, or Anglo-Indian literature will strengthen collections with which they work in these specific fields. Few people complain. Fewer still consider that decisions made in this way day in and day out have a long-lasting and perhaps permanent impact on what survives to become a cultural memory. Every decision to buy a book is consciously or unconsciously a decision not to buy many other books. Financial and space constraints make every acquisition's decision contestatory in nature. Academic indifference or the appearance of such indifference to the institutional practices which determine acquisition's decisions results in the normalization of the collection that libraries accumulate. The gap between what is published and what is collected does not lessen. It widens from year to year, as does the gap between the collected conventional and the uncollected unconventional. This gap has consequences for what we can remember and teach. Every student, teacher, and scholar in the historical humanities today knows that this is a time when study of the scattered, disregarded, unedited, or unrepublished materials that still live in this gap 
is providing the substance for what is proving to be some of the most exciting and literally reinvigorating historical and literary scholarship of our time. Almost none has noticed, however, or at least none has commented, that all research libraries are perpetuating this gap for future scholars to struggle against in what they're collecting of the here and now. Accidents are not method. They do not cancel each other out in some mystical way. The institutional structures through which libraries collect materials that will ultimately be part of the memories that document our own age need analysis. They need it not only from those who work within and accept as givens the constraints of those structures, that is, those of us who are librarians, but also from those users who retain the capacity to be surprised by those structures, perhaps even to find them annoying. Thank you.